uh, about what we learned through this process. And then um, as mentioned, we'll turn it over to questions from you. The entire team would also like to acknowledge that our work is based in Toronto, also known as Tecoronto, meaning the place in the water where the trees are standing. And it's covered by Treaty 13. We also want to acknowledge that our project didn't look into the unique factors affecting older Indigenous communities with respect to housing, but we recognize the ongoing impacts of colonization and its effect on housing and land use. We would also like to acknowledge uh, Rona McDonald and Emily Nalder, who co-supervised the research project through the Department of Occupational Therapy and Occupational Science and provided invaluable support. So to begin our presentation, as a reminder, we're gonna hear from Luba, uh, who is gonna share a personal narrative about how this project came to be. Hi, I'm Luba. Um, I spent my life as a helper. I was always volunteering my time. I started as a child in Scouts, uh, a Ukrainian youth group called PLAST. We started to sing, we used to sing Christmas carols in the Ukrainian nursing homes, and that really sparked my love of volunteering. After completing my BSW with honors at X University in 2013 and volunteering at Tobias House, I got my first job in housing. As a supportive housing worker, it is our duty to help adults with mental health and or addiction issues find housing and attain goals they set. Some individuals hopefully will gain um, market rent housing, boarding homes, or tradition, transitional housing. If not, they end up back in the shelter system. It is through being a supportive housing worker that I had my first experience with a complex individual. The person that I'm thinking of was older, had mental health, addiction issues, and physical health challenges. His issues were so severe that they had to be taken away by EMS after we attempted CPR for collapsing. As a result, they lost their housing. We also had a racialized client at one point uh, who was trying to um, light his incense. However, this was against program policy to light anything or burn anything in their rooms. The, the uh, matter was so conscientious among workers that the senior management had to be called in. And of course, they decided this was the there was his right to practice his own religion. Now, it's interesting enough. Um, I heard from some colleagues who are a bit older than me um, that decades ago that there were lists of boarding homes that would take clients. But this whole list dwindled down to almost nothing. They lamented over the, the, the fact that over the last few decades that these resources that they used to have are, have been slowly dwindling. They point to the fact that there's gentrification and nimbyism pushing the unwanted out. Pardon me. 
I have a lengthy history of helping others. Um, it is through my activism that I saw how flawed, to say the least, <laughs> fragmented and medical model based our systems are, the healthcare and mental health care systems. I am passionate about housing, mental health reform and mental health reform. It is through this activism that I met Amy, which was wonderful. Uh, I met her at Mad Pride Toronto, which uh, I had been organizing for a few years. Um, but then we had the good fortune of being connected to the lovely ladies, Leanna and Tiffany. When I met Amy at Mad Pride, we realized that we had similar experiences working in the community. We learned some startling st statistics that I'd like to share with you. Um, one second. 15% of homeless are seniors. It's an increase of 5% since 2018. 60% of homeless are racialized. This is clearly an overrepresentation. Race in itself is not a social determinant of health, but racism is, as well as its devastating effects. 42% of homeless have a degree. Now let's look at a profile of the workers across Canada. It found that one in 10 were low income. Workers tend to work part-time and they earn less than social workers and community service workers in all industry and all the different industries that social service workers can work in. Knowing all this, we wondered if this data is out there, why are why is so little being done? And just to jump in and clarify those statistics, Luba. Um, so all when you were saying like fifteen percent of those experiencing homelessness, was that specifically in Toronto? Those yes, stats? it was. Yes, specifically in Toronto. And then also in terms of the profile of workers, it was saying that um, workers working in homelessness support sector they were the ones who were found to be low income compared to social workers across other industries. Correct. Just to yes. clarify. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so as, as Luba shared, these are, yeah, these are some of the things that we uh, observed in our work. Um, obviously the precarious and complex nature of being an older person who's experiencing or facing homelessness as the two examples Luba shared demonstrate, it's not just health, but religion and, and many other factors that play a part in, in having housing. Obviously not all workers have the same experience uh, as Luba and I, but after we connected with one another and reflected on some of those stats, we realized we couldn't be the only ones thinking about this issue. And so that's one, th one of the reasons we decided to talk to service providers in this sector to gain their insights. Another reason was that it was also more feasible to connect with service providers uh, during the pandemic, obviously with all the restrictions in place. I'm an occupational therapist by background, so I was able to connect to the department and uh, Tiffany and Leanna spearheaded the project as student occupational therapists. And again, it was co-supervised by myself and Luba and Rona McDonald and Emily Nalder. So it is that research project now that we are going to present to you.
So the aim of our research was to explore Toronto's current service system from the perspective of health and social care workers to gain a better understanding of the mechanisms that challenge the delivery of specialized care for this population. So the research questions that guided this study are, what are the experiences of health and social care workers providing services for older adults at risk of or are currently experiencing homelessness? And how do workers' experiences inform our understanding of Toronto's current service delivery system for older adults? Our team used an interpretive description study design to explore the current research questions presented. And we use an interpretive description methodology because it allows researchers to collate individual experiences, but also construct shared meanings and generate practice-related recommendations that are informed by the researcher's own clinical lens and biases. And since a lot of different health and social care providers are involved in the care of older adults experiencing homelessness, we wanted to recruit service professionals, professionals from various organizations working in Toronto with diverse backgrounds to really get an in-depth understanding of Toronto's current service system of care. Overall, we conducted six semi-structured interviews and our data analysis um, procedures were informed by Brian Clark's thematic analysis and Sally Thorne's interpretive description. And after we coded, we began a group process of grouping the codes into themes while rereading transcripts and constructing thematic maps to lead to our, our understandings of how the themes fit together to answer our research questions. So now to present some of the findings of the study, uh, we're gonna highlight five different themes through, uh, through this next part of the presentation. The service provider experience begins with the population they work with. Consistent with the background literature, as well as their own experiences, as we described, service providers highlight that older adults experiencing homelessness have complex and compounding health and social care needs. Here's an example from one of our interviews uh, with a service provider recounting their experience. He was significantly depressed. He was making suicide threats when they told him that he couldn't go back to his home. He was very isolated. He had no family, no friends. He had health issues. He had diabetes that was not being managed. And yeah, my heart broke for him. Like that example highlights, as well as the examples Luba shared earlier, service providers identify that when working with older adults, there are multiple factors that need to be considered in order to meet their needs. And that these needs differ from younger unhoused peers or similarly aged, stably housed peers. We purposely use the language of multiple factors to match the language of multiple jeopardies, a term coined by Deborah King in 1988 in reference to Black feminist experiences. King says the modifier multiple refers not only to several simultaneous oppressions, but to the multiplicative relationships among them as well. In other words, these aren't separate issues that affect individuals. The issues compound and need to be addressed together, not separately. And that is what service providers often meant when they said complex. Some of these unique but multiple factors shared by interviewees included uh, the need to monitor, accommodate, and seek support for complex medical needs, needing to address cognitive impairments alongside mental health, substance use, mobility, and accessibility needs, financial instability, difficulty managing daily living, reduced social support, and often a lack of sense of community, uh, issues of trust, 
Um, and of course, all of these issues were further compounded by personal identity factors such as gender or race. Gaps identified in the system. Service providers experience multitude of barriers and limitations providing services to this population. Service providers have highlighted the many, many barriers and limitations that they encounter while working to meet the complex needs, the, the complex care needs of older adults within the current health and social service system. Service providers highlight the lack of adequate funding structures that support the provision of senior specific services. Particularly service providers highlight the lack of accessible medical support and home care services that are readily available, especially for those living in shelters, lack of follow-up care and efficient communications between services to ensure con continuity of care, lack of financial support options, lack of housing options that are appropriate for seniors, lack of culturally appropriate and tailored services available. These are not challenges that can be untangled and addressed on their own. And as service providers point out, most older adults, they, they do not experience only one barrier. The issues compound and as a result, older adults experiencing homelessness often end up in places that do not meet their needs, such as shelters where their health and well-being deteriorates. We can appreciate how service providers seem to be stuck in the middle, where the population they are serving has complex needs, but the service system that they must navigate to provide the care uh, falls short and is also slow to implement service changes that would enable them to better address the specific care needs of this population. As a result of the system's barriers and limitations, service providers often express their feelings of frustration and disappointment. For instance, one participant recalled working with an older adult who required multiple services. However, the service provider recognized the limitations of their time and the resources available to support this client. They stated, this was a really good lesson for me about what my role is because there is a limit to what I can do. He needed a million and one things, but I can't. I, I'm not going to work 40 hours on a person and stress myself out. Another participant demonstrated their frustration with reactive interventions, where the older adults' care needs have been left unaddressed for many years, leading to exacerbated health conditions or complicated housing crises. They stated, why didn't the housing provider intervene earlier? Because then we wouldn't be in this situation where clients are in so much of a worse issue than they have to be in. Overall, many system level strategies that are currently being implemented can be understood as band-aid solutions. That is solutions or approaches that are short-term, temporary, superficial, and do not address the root of the issues faced by older adults experiencing homelessness. One participant expressed their frustration with these so-called solutions that are implemented within the city of Toronto, stating, well, guess what? The city of Toronto just opened up a new shelter specifically for seniors. That's not the solution. 
So what are the changes that service providers do want to see made within the current service delivery system? As part of our interviews, we asked service providers to indicate their ideas for change to the current service system, because being well-versed in the ways that the current system has supported or failed to support older adults experiencing homelessness, service providers were able to clearly articulate change ideas and potential solutions that can be implemented to improve the overall quality of care that is available for older adults at risk of or experiencing homelessness. Um, we'll present them for you now as five major ideas for change. One was to encourage relational care and create a sense of community. Service providers highlighted the importance of relational care and fostering a sense of community within organizations to enhance service provision for older adults. For instance, one service provider stated, we aim and strive to have quite relational connections to people and find with populations that don't experience a lot of trust, that relationship piece is the utmost priority. They recognize that building connections could help lessen the impact of social, social isolation on older adults experiencing homelessness. They also recognize the importance of building connections between organizations that serve this population. The service providers identified a need for improved communication processes and stronger relationships between organizations. And they said this would allow for more streamlined processes to ensure follow-up care as older adults are often transitioned between multiple different services. Service providers also identified a need for preventative rather than reactive care approaches. That is services that intervene earlier and thus would reduce the likelihood for seniors needing urgent or crisis care. This is important because service providers experience frustration when working with seniors that have already declined to a level where meaningful support cannot be provided due to system constraints and limitations. Service providers also talked about using holistic and accessible approaches. Service providers often felt limited in their ability to address the complex senior-specific care needs and often wished for more holistic and accessible services that would offer simultaneous health and social services to address the complex care needs of older adults. And they, they described this as one participant described it as they have like a home visiting doctor, they have an OT on the team, they have a social worker on the team, they have a nurse practitioner on the team. They have this really wraparound like healthcare system, healthcare team that goes into clients' homes and like meets their healthcare needs and also addresses the social care needs as well. If all of my senior clients had that level of wraparound support, I think their health and overall well being outcomes would be so different. And lastly, we'd like to mention that service providers often advocated for longer term services and interventions. They, they really address that seniors care needs will likely increase with time due to age related changes. And they said having everything on one, they described this as having everything as in these holistic and accessible approaches on one team and they get attached to that one person and they follow that person to death or long term care. And that is the support that they wish that everyone could have. We asked ourselves, how do their experiences inform our understanding of Toronto's current service system of care? The system perpetuates a cycle. Old, older adults remain homeless or at risk of facing homelessness. 
Um, and workers uh, continually face disappointment and possibly burnout and moral distress in their work. Evidently, these ideas for change to the system are not currently being prioritized or implemented system-wide. Thus, our current system isn't adequately prepared to provide services for complex older adults with their multiple and intersecting needs. And this increases the likelihood that older adults remain in a cycle of stabilization to crisis where they continue to be at risk of or experiencing homelessness. And in parallel, service providers continue to experience frustration, disappointment, burnout within this limited system. A major finding of this study is that the state of the current system not only makes it difficult for older adults to exit the system cycle of homelessness, but it also perpetuates the frustrations, emotional exhaustion, and limitations service providers feel when working within the sector. We've picturized our understanding of the current system as a, as a stepwise descending triangle depicts how the issues faced within the service system compound on one another. When service systems are unable to meet the complex care needs of the population, they exist to serve. Not only do the service recipient, the older adults at risk of, of or experiencing homelessness suffer, so do the service super, uh, providers. As service providers are unable to help the clients fulfill their housing, health, and social service needs due to the lack of sustainable solutions offered by the system, they end up supporting older adults from crisis to stabilization as they remain in the cycle of crisis. Long term, this becomes demoralizing and frustrating and negatively impacts service providers as well as older adults facing homelessness. Overall, the information we gathered point towards an unstable cycle for both older adults experiencing homelessness and the workers who struggle to support them. However, we depict this in an upside down triangle shape to highlight that the burden is balancing precariously on the older individual experiencing homelessness. All right, so we're now gonna move into the, the meat of our presentation, actually. That was all sort of like background information. Um, uh, I'm going to facilitate this panel just to orient everyone to this conversation. Um, and I actually wanna start by going off script because as I was listening to us present, I have two questions that I thought uh, could be clarified. Um, so first, uh, what do we mean when we say older adults? Because I don't think we really defined um, that. Um, anyone? Yeah, Leanna. <laughs> um, by older adults, uh, especially with this population that we're referencing in our project, we mean anybody over the age of 50, because, you know, and that's different to a normal 
older adults that, that we would typically refer to as maybe 65 and older, because people who are at risk or experiencing homelessness who live in these precarious situations often experience like health and social service needs earlier than the typical older adults. So that's anybody age 50 and over and anyone else who wants to add. That's helpful. Um, and then the other question that came to mind through the presentation was, um, Tiffany, you had given the quote of like, well, guess what? The city of Toronto just opened another shelter specifically for seniors, dot, dot, dot. That's not the solution. Um, so I wanted to, but one of our recommendations has been like, oh, seniors need senior specific services. So can you help us understand why uh, a senior specific shelter is still not the solution? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think that shelters in general were are just band-aid solution and band-aid solutions. Um, and it definitely doesn't address their complex uh, needs holistically as we were emphasizing um, throughout our presentation. Uh, I, I think that shelters, a lot of our interviewees were saying that, you know, they don't have enough staff. It's such a high caseload that uh, people are managing. Uh, they don't have the adequate medical supports. Um, so it's it's just a way to, co to just pretend like they are implementing a solution, but it's actually not the solution. We need the holistic supports from interprofessional teams um, and improved continuity of care. Can I jump in? Yes. Yeah. Well, a shelter, if you look at a shelter, a shelter is what a temporary home. You can't stay in a shelter. Shelter, shelter, you have a it's not a home. It's not somewhere where you can you can feel safe. It's not somewhere where you can keep your belongings. I mean, most people are afraid of dying when they go into shelters because there's such a incidence of violence among the shelters because no one wants to work there because of the, the incidence of violence. I know amongst my coworkers, no one wanted to really work in a shelter, but that's where they started was in the shelter system, but no one wanted to start there because of the fact that was, you know, there was not enough security, there's not enough, there's not enough resources even for the older adults. There's no no one to give medications. Uh, and no one knew what medications these people, you know, these complex these people, these complex needs needed. I mean, I'm sure that they didn't even give out medications and they surely didn't have licenses to give out medication. And, and then there's the issue of getting all the different, uh, the different um, care providers into the shelter and no one wants to go into the shelter. But the basic point is it's not a home. What, you, what people need is what, what many, many housing providers have started is going away from from the shelter type system is moving into more of a of a, a transitional home type setting where people can stay for a year or more until they can they can find a better housing solution or some people have even some agencies haven't even begun to make affordable housing there there are many apartments and condos being built why can't we have mixed housing? I mean, this is absurd that in, in such a rich city that we don't have enough housing to house. Absolutely. 
Sorry, yeah, I'm going to cut in just because there's more questions, Luba, and I know that you could talk about this for, for hours. Um, oh, no, but I, I I'm glad that we spent time on this, though, because I, I really want to drill this home because I think when you listen to messaging, sometimes it, and it's true that an emergency shelter is better than staying outside, but an emergency shelter is not a home. And I think that that, like, we just have to keep saying it because it's it's often sort of like, yeah, the shelters are looked at as like, here's the solution. And um, as your participant said, it, it's not. <clears throat> so as, as the three of you already know, one of my favorite things to come out of this research project is that upside down triangle. Um, so being a service provider myself, uh, I think our focus can be so much on the service recipient or the client and their experience that we don't spend a lot of time reflecting on our own experiences. So to see it in one sort of one graph, um, so clearly showing how uh, everyone is impacted, I, I just, uh, I don't know if I was surprised by it. I am a worker myself who experienced burnout <laughs> working in the sector, uh, but it, it was a surprising finding in that I just never seen it that way before. So my question to you uh, is what surprised you most about the findings? And maybe we'll begin with uh, Leanna. Um, something that really stood out in, in the interviews that we conducted was, and something that I really, yeah, found surprising was how viscerally I really empathized with the service providers' frustrations when they were talking about what solutions they felt like they wanted to see, because when they would say things like, we want increased continuity of care or, you know, or fostering relationships, like all of these solutions seemed like well evidence-based solutions and wanting more affordable housing. Like they seem very like well, well thought out things, solutions that just make sense. And then, so that really surprised me because I was like, why isn't this being implemented? And if we know this information and if everybody who's working is kind of advocating for these solutions, why isn't that being done? And why are we still in this cycle of crisis? Great, and I actually, I wanna come back to that because uh, my mm -hmm. next question is actually that same question that you posed at the end, but let's hear from um, Tiffany and Luba. What, what was most surprising about the findings to you? Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the interviews that really stood out to me um, was one service provider who was speaking about relational care and how that was um, what was emphasized within their organization uh, to build uh, genuine connections and um, to practice relational care with uh, their patients or clients. Um, and uh, this particular interviewer spoke about how, you know, their relationship with these older adults was bi-directional where, you know, they are giving services for this person, but they're also um, gaining a friendship and also building a real uh, trust uh, and fr uh, trusting relationship with this person. Um, and I think that was really surprising for me as a student and now as a new grad, because, um, you know, in school as a healthcare practitioner, we're um, we're taught to keep professional boundaries, you know, not to share too much. Uh, we shouldn't become friends with our patients. Um, and uh, with this particular interviewer, they said that, you know, that's what really made their organization work. Um, and that really um, struck me and helped me to reflect on, you know, how can I find that balance between maintaining professional boundaries, but also, you know, building genuine connections where 
people who have mistrust within these systems um, can uh, receive better care through that. So yeah. And I think when we're thinking about uh, like race ethics and power, right? Um, you actually highlight uh, a really interesting component of it because professionalism itself um, is a it's weaponized as a tool of oppression actually. And uh, it's kind of like, as we're thinking about it, it made me think about uh, like, why do we so overemphasize professionalism? Who does it benefit to act professionally? Like who are the folks that um, do well with a professional service versus those who, who you know, we wanna build trust, we wanna spend that time uh, who benefit more from relational care. And I think you'll see quite a difference. Um, I don't know if anyone has a response to that. Well, I was taught from the anti-oppressive practice point of view of believing that, that we should be working within the gray, that everything is not so clear cut of being professional versus the client, that, that there is no clear balance. I mean, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Jennifer Poole. She was an offered and she was just like such an awesome, awesome professor to me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we were talk about we were we were taught about uh, about uh, reflexivity and thinking about the way the way that we approach things right in the moment and and about uh, about from the social work point of view about you know just blurring the lines i mean not to the point where you know you're you're taking a you know that that you Advantage, become yeah. friends or whatever but i mean there is there is a gray zone and that you have to live with and you have to question always and i'm not i'm not but even this by the <laughs> sorry no, I just, well, Luba, I don't know if we made it clear that you're trained as a social worker and the rest of us are occupational therapists. And I think if we like zoom out, occupational therapy has been very much taken in by medical model where social work has been able to um, stay out of it a little bit. I mean, I think there's arguments <laughs> that social work has also medicalized itself, but um, well, that is a major difference in our training, for sure. I started as a nurse, remember? I'm yes. <laughs> So you know where we're coming from in terms of the yes, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> Luba, what what surprised you most about the findings then? Uh, what surprised me, I guess, that it just really validated what I felt, and and it was like, yeah, I can I can totally see where these people are coming from because yes, I was burnt out. <laughs> I mean. Uh, because I've worked with uh, so many clients, you know, that uh, have been suicidal or had all sorts of crisis situations, and and you know, being with with that and feeling for them because you've made such a bond. Yeah, I, I totally. And not just that, how... though. It's the lack of other places to refer the client to. Like you kind of. Yeah, yeah, and it stood and out to fact... me from the interviewers that uh yes there are gaps in the system but it is the workers who are filling those gaps right now 
Well, the um, thing is that there's such nimbyism and 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 uh, and and gentrification. Now you can't find places to to help people get supportive right. housing after you you let them out of out of your 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 care after the thirty days. There's no there. We don't have the list that we used to of affordable housing that we used to i mean it's 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 become deplorable and yeah you still have all these people saying no we don't want these people in our neighborhood who are these people that they're talking about they're talking about their fellow citizens these are these are not these people they are our sisters and brothers and people that are you know that deserve our respect it's just my two cents no, and actually that reminds me of um, transitional housing or, or like safe bed programs. They were set at a 30 day stay back mm. when it was possible to find a new place to stay within 30 days. And yes. now it's, that's just not possible. Yeah. So, okay. So we did hear a lot of the change ideas, Lana, as you had said. Um, and also uh, I want, we wanted to give a shout out to uh, Amanda Grenier who did, uh, their research you can find at aginghomelessness.com. Um, they, a lot of our background literature search was through their work. Um, and one of the things that they found, they, so they researched policy um, records across Canada. Uh, so documents that looked at strategies and plans to end homelessness. And uh, I'm, so I'm gonna read their quote here. While there has been attention in recent years, um, more attention to older adults in recent years, they were limited in articulating specific needs or directions for change. In addition, when older adults were listed, they were often listed last among a list of other identities. So the question is, uh, you know, given that these change ideas exist, that they are evidence-based, um, that staff are already doing them, like why is it not being more widely implemented? Where, like, why are people um, not paying attention? Uh, and so, yeah, why do you think that these changes remain? Un no, why do you think these <laughs> issues remain unresolved? <laughs> without change. Eliana, I just, I saw you unmute yourself, so I'm gonna call on this. <laughs> uh, I didn't, okay, I will jump in. Um, I think I think that's a really complex question and probably there's like a lot of ways to answer it. My, my thoughts are that one, there's like a knowledge to action gap always with the, with the literature and like what happens. And I think that's one part of it. It's like, as we gain more like knowledge about seniors needs, seniors complex care needs and how unfeasible our current service system is, hopefully that'll, you know, gain traction. And I also think it's because homelessness is not like a one sector issue. Multiple sectors need to be involved and have to like forefront the issue and like think that it's a, a very worthwhile issue to like come together on and advocate for. So that takes a lot of that work as well like that groundwork and I also think it's like maybe it's connected to that I think it's because you know people aren't listening more so it's not one of the more popular issues out there so I think it's a lot of that coming together to just kind of ignore all the change ideas and the need for this kind of change that needs to happen. Luba, I know you have something to say. Yes. <laughs> well, first of all, there's ageism. No one really cares about elderly people like they should. 
there's a horrible discrimination against uh, getting older and and whatnot because we wouldn't have all this beauty stuff if if it wasn't for that uh, the whole beauty cosmetics if it wasn't for for ageism no one looks into adults older adults then there's a lack of political will i mean politicians aren't looking into into older adults they are now but there was a there's a huge lack of political will and then there's the fact that um, because of that i mean no research is being done because there's no funding for it coming from the government and there's not enough people interested in this this stuff until now because there was such a lack of interest and lack of political will and yeah. yeah. It's ageism compounding classism, compounding with yeah, any other isms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Racism. system. Yeah. Exactly. Um Tiffany, did you have an answer to that or we can Yeah, that? I just echo what Liana and Lubo was saying that I think it's a big question that we always get yeah. asked, but we don't know the answer to. Um, definitely would require more coordinated action from higher levels. Um, and I think that's really what's missing and also what, like Lubo was saying, lack of political will, lack of funding, all that. Yeah. Um, but I do want to highlight that, you know, service, the interviewees that we interviewed, <laughs> um, <laughs> we learned that, you know, they, they did their best uh, to implement small changes with what they could do. And that's what I really admired about all of um, our participants is, you know, they tried to push the typical boundaries um, with the older adults that they worked with, um, you know, building the genuine connections um, to individuals with um, social isolation, providing the emotional support and advocating um, to different services. But, you know, at the end of all the interviews, they all recognize that they are limited. Um, so, yeah, I think that just further speaks to the need for collective action. Um, and coordinated action. That actually reminds me of something that one of our participants said really quickly. Like they yeah. were like, you, in this work, you'll have really high highs and really low lows. So like when you can come together to help a client, that was amazing for them. But then there was a lot of times where it's, it's like, there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to turn to because of the service constraints that exist. And yeah, yeah. stood out. So before we turn it over to see if there's any questions from the audience, our, our last question, we'll just kind of go around, is um, a two-parter. What is uh, a limitation of the study and what do you see as next, or maybe we'll do an and or. You can either answer what is a limitation of the study or what do you see as next steps for research? And um, we'll start with Tiffany. Who's going to take the initiative? Yeah, I, I could just start with a limitation. Um, I think one of the major limitations is that we only had six participants and we recognize that there are so many other service professionals um, who are involved that we haven't uh, interviewed, such as doctors or pharmacists or physios. Um, and yeah, we also had a limited time to complete this study and it was also during the pandemic. Um, I don't know if that was a positive because we did virtual and maybe people who didn't wanna travel for mm -hmm. more wanted to sure. participate but yeah that was also that's a limitation yeah any comments on next steps for research 
or I, sorry, I see a note that we have a bit of time. So do you want to talk about the limitations and then we'll talk about next steps? So yeah, sure. Leanna, did uh, any limitations of the study you wanted to talk about? I think maybe this is a limitation from like our perspectives as student researchers. We really came into it as very novice to the issue. We wanted to learn more. So a lot of our study is really broad and there's so many more issues within that we could go in so much more in depth, like exploring the ideas for change some more, exploring more about the service provider's experience. And so I think that's just a limitation that it's really broad and there's so much more that we could that could be done with the, in within this topic. Totally. We went in with a very open, <laughs> open, uh, open-ended question for sure. Luba, any any comments about limitations? I guess our limitations were like the others have stated. I wish that we had a broader base of um, more time of to talk professionals. To yeah. yeah. Um, I had also mentioned a limitation earlier that we didn't, uh, uh, there wasn't time to sort of get the ethical approval to talk to um, Indigenous communities and that, uh, like, we know that that is um, older Indigenous folks who are unhoused, like that is a, a big problem and um, yeah, it, I see that as a limitation of the study in both uh, a next area for research. So what, uh, what do you see as next steps for for our research study in particular, but also for the research at large. This time I will start with Luba, just to mix it up. <laughs> um, next steps for our research, well, I hope that uh, maybe we start looking more at the intersectionality. Mm. And I hope that we uh, get this research uh, published Yeah, we, we've been having lots of conversations about intersectionality, but we didn't get to it in this panel. <laughs> so absolutely, that's yeah. a big one. Um, maybe there'll be an audience question about it. Uh, Lana, what's what do you see as next steps? I think one of our next steps is maybe to, it's, it's building off, like we wanna share our findings. We also wanna like connect with others for doing similar work so we can start making a big go of this and, you know, Hopefully, we connect it to change. And Tiffany? Yeah, I totally agree. I think we all can agree we want to publish or um, explore different avenues to get our research known. Um, and then one thing that I thought about that we started with, but we're, we started off very broad, but um, I think what would be interesting for next steps for this research is you know, learning more about specific services in Toronto that target this mm. population and yeah. learning, you know, what works and what doesn't work. That's something that I think we initially started out with, but we didn't get to. Yeah. Um, but I think that would be interesting, like creating a service map mm -hmm. in Toronto. Yeah, um, for sure. To be more specific. Yeah. 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 